For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Schnepp, and I am one of the pastors here on staff. I am sort of Caleb's counterpart to the contemporary services, and so I don't get to spend a whole lot of time with you here in the 850, and so I consider it a real treat and a real honor to be able to be with you and share God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be in Luke 24, and so if you have your Bibles, you can begin to make your way there. If you don't have one, there should be a Bible in front of you in the pew, and you can grab that one. And if you're using the Bible provided for you, we'll be on page 749. The story we're going to be looking at today is called The Road to Emmaus. And it's a really, really fascinating story, not only for what's held within the story itself, but also for the circumstances surrounding it. This Road to Emmaus, this story happens immediately following the resurrection of Jesus. We know from the other account in John that it's the very same day. And what's really interesting is that this story happens before Jesus has gone back to his disciples, has gone back to his family, those that he loved. The only person he has revealed himself to at this point is Mary Magdalene. And so you wonder as you read this, you say, Jesus, really interesting that you would be here right now. As we're going to see in the text, he's walking with two of his former followers, and his identity is obscure. It's kept from them. And so you say, man, there must be something for us to learn. If it was important enough for Jesus to spend maybe a couple hours with these disciples before he would even go back and see Peter and see John and see his mother Mary, what is there to learn? Why was it that important to Jesus? I think there's a lot for us to learn. You know, and I wonder, and maybe you're like me in that, if I'm Jesus and, and I've spent the last three years of my life ministering to people, but getting flack the entire time from the religious leaders, being mistrusted, being disbelieved, eventually culminating to being betrayed by one of my own disciples, one of my twelve one of my 12 brothers. I, I got to believe there's somewhere else I would be than spending a couple hours walking with two of my former followers. Yeah, you know, I wonder if I would be maybe sitting on top of the temple trying to stick it to the people who just crucified me. Maybe I'd be writing even just in the sky, you know, Dear Pharisees, I told you so. You know, something like that. Or, Yours truly, the Messiah. Which is what I said. You know, P.S., you're fired. Something like that. But instead, where do we find Jesus? Doing nothing like that. He's walking with two of his former followers. And as we're going to see, they are dejected, without hope. And likely, they're even arguing vehemently with one another. You know, we know that because the word used in verse 15 of our text is the Greek word suzateo. It's a word used to describe the conversation going on between the two. And it's the very same word that they used in Acts 6 to describe the conversation going on between the religious leaders, which would eventually culminate in the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the early church. And so we know that this is, this is a, heated, a heated conversation. And Luke just lets us sort of peer in, lets us watch from afar, and then Jesus brings us up close. And in order to really give you a sense of, of the weight of what these two followers are feeling, I want to give you a little bit of historical context of what has led them to today. From the early pages of the Old Testament, 
God promised that he would one day send the Messiah to rescue and redeem his people. The Israelites have been battling with surrounding nations for most of their time in existence. And Messiah would one day come and recover their land, bring back the kingdom. And as the Old Testament closes with the book of Malachi, it begins a 400-year period where God is silent, known as the intertestamental period. And these four centuries were just tumultuous for the nation of Israel. During these 400 years, they were ruled by five different empires, all of which had wars involved. There's about 100 years in that 400-year period where they had wrestled back rule of themselves through fighting, eventually to succumb to the Roman Empire. And it's under the rule of the Roman Empire that the New Testament opens. And so as you can imagine, after these four centuries of God being quiet and of just one empire after another taking them over, you can, you can really sense how the heartbeat of the Jewish people <coughs> excuse me, is that God would send the long-awaited Messiah, the one who would rescue <coughs> God's people and restore their long-forgotten kingdom. Excuse me one second. So now imagine for a moment the hope you have in your heart as you begin to hear the reports of Jesus. In Luke 4, it records what is his first sermon. It says he went to the synagogue of the town he was raised in Nazareth. And they had a service and it says this time he was the one to read the scriptures. So they hand him the scroll. It doesn't say whether he chose it or whether it was chosen for him. But it's Isaiah 61. And Jesus reads these words. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It says, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. You can almost feel the tension in the room. It says the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And so you can imagine the thoughts going through everyone's head here. Jesus, is, is it you? Are you the one Isaiah was writing about? And then in what was, must have been an incredible moment, Jesus says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Boom, just like that. It must have been an incredible moment. And so you follow this Jesus. You hear the stories. You see the amazing things he's doing. You hear about how he calls Lazarus, Lazarus out from the grave. He brings him back to life. You see him calling demons out of people. And your heart believes. And you say, this is our Messiah. God has sent him. He's healing folks, raising them from the dead. And you begin to follow him. Thank you, Scotty. Thanks, sir. Thank you. Fighting a bit of a cold, so bear with me here. So the hope in your heart just begins to, to rise. And now imagine 
It culminates as Jesus rides on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem. People are yelling out, Hosanna! The word which means save or you're going to be our savior or to save us. And what turns out to be an incredible turn of events. The joy in your soul turns to anguish. As your long awaited Messiah is hauled up on a cross by the very political kingdom he's supposed to overthrow. And that day, a crucifixion was more than just a way to kill a criminal. It was a political statement. For Roman citizens, they were never crucified. It was only for conquered peoples. And so this is the moment that we, we see here in Luke 24. An interesting item to note is that in John 19, it names four women at Jesus' cross. Four ladies who are looking up as he's crucified. One of them he names as Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, we flip back to our passage, we're going to see that one of the, the two disciples here is named Cleopas. And scholars will, most of them think that Cleopas and Clopas were the same person. So it's a very good chance that the two people walking on this road to Emmaus is Mary, the wife of Cleopas, who just watched Jesus be crucified, and her husband. So you can imagine what's going on in their hearts in this moment. Heaviness. Despair. How can this be? Did we miss something? So the text tells us that, as we said, they were kind of arguing or debating with great fervor. And, and being married, I can really imagine one of these moments. It's like you're in the middle of a discussion, maybe with your spouse and the phone rings. And you're like, hey, yeah, how are you? Oh, we're great. Yeah, we're great. You hang back up and you're like, back at one another. And Jesus sort of walks into this awkward moment. And you know, this is really the first item to note for us today. It tells us a lot about the heart of Christ. With everywhere that Jesus could be in this time, where is he? We see he's walking after two of his disillusioned and despairing followers. Christ is not content to give up on them. Not content to say, well, you should have known better. I told you I was going to rise again. He's calling them back to himself as he walks with them. And this is the same Jesus who still does this today. Calling the doubters and the disillusions back to himself, and not with a heavy-handed tyranny, but with unrelenting grace. So Jesus comes alongside them and asks them what they're talking about. And you can almost hear the exasperation in Cleopas' voice as he responds to Jesus. He turns to Jesus and asks him what turns out to be an incredibly ironic question. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And you can imagine perhaps Jesus almost smiling on the inside as he says, no, I I think I have an idea what's transpired here over the last few days. But instead he responds innocently enough and he just says, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And at verse 20, it says, The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. 
They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. You can hear the confusion in their voice as they described what happened to Christ. This man that they had believed was the Messiah ended up being killed. But then these rumors start swirling that maybe he did rise again. But you see that these, these two disciples don't even have the hope to wait around and see whether or not they're true. They don't even want to know what's at the root of it. They've given up. And maybe that's something that here <clears throat> you and I can relate to. This inherent desire that the promises of the scriptures would be true. But maybe you feel like the Lord has let me down. Things haven't turned out quite how I thought they would. And what Jesus shows these two disciples, and what I believe he'll show you, is that if you let him, he will prove himself faithful to you. The same Savior who proved himself faithful in that day, two centuries ago, still proves himself faithful today. And Jesus responds to them. And he responds to them seemingly harshly, as you read here in the text. It says, he said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And I think of the shock on their face. I've kind of been chuckling myself as I've thought about this moment. So we've got two, the, two followers of Christ who are probably in some of the worst moods they've been in in a long time. They probably don't feel like talking with this stranger. But they say, fine, you can walk with us in the middle of a casual conversation, just telling Jesus about it. All of a sudden he seems to just turn on them. Imagine them just looking at one another like, who does this guy think he is? Going to start yelling at us out of nowhere? You're not walking with us anymore, buddy. You are no longer invited to be with us. And I wonder, you know, I thought about this myself. Have you ever had one of these moments where you just have someone sort of turn on you out of nowhere? Yeah, I remember I was playing golf with a, a buddy of mine and they paired us up with two other guys. And we go out and we're on the, the first green. And I hit this just terrible putt, really long, way past the hole. And I hear one of the other two guys that we're paired with say, hit a house. And I was like, what? Who does this guy? So I'm like, all right, buddy and I just kind of look at each other and we just kind of laugh. Not even kidding. A little bit later, I go hit another one. It's terrible. You can see the theme of my golf game, another bad putt. And I hear, ooh, stone hands. What? I will hit you with this putter. Who are you? Out of nowhere. But in fairness to Jesus, the word translated foolish here would really rather be translated obtuse, indicating a lack of complete understanding. And additionally, though, he calls them slow to believe. And what Jesus means by that is that he's calling attention to the fact that they haven't fully oriented themselves to his teaching while he walked among them. But Jesus... Rather than leaving them here in this moment of confusion, he walks them through the entire Old Testament and shows them how the Old Testament, through the prophets from Genesis to Malachi, has been teaching that Christ would come. And he shows how it points to the Messiah. And in a moment, he'll show that he is that Messiah. So they come to the end of their journey and they convince Jesus to stay and eat with them. And so as they're sharing a meal... God opens their eyes to see that this stranger 
This man they've spent maybe several hours walking with is in fact Jesus himself. And boy, can you imagine that moment. Their eyes are opened. Despair becomes delight like that. Hope lost becomes hope renewed. The spiritual fatigue and the spiritual burnout that they had been experiencing is replaced with spiritual fervor and a renewed zeal for Jesus. See, these two had thought that the cross meant the end of hope, but what Jesus shows them in, a, in this moment is that the cross was not the end of hope, but rather the beginning. Now, we could spend an entire sermon series looking at all the different things that this text teaches us. I just want to focus on three things this morning. Three ways that Jesus speaks to us today. Three different things that are, are, happen to our hearts. And he wants to speak to each of them. The first we call the we had hoped. You know, you can hear the disappointment in the voices of these disciples. We had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped he'd be the one to redeem us. They're frustrated because they assumed that this Messiah would bring about the renewal to the Jewish nation that they were looking for. But the renewal Christ brings is not for the Jewish nation as a political nation, but for the Jewish nation as individuals and for the rest of the world as he brings about a renewal of their hearts and a reconciliation of their relationship with God. And so it didn't go as they planned. Instead of Christ being heralded as a king, he's crucified as a criminal. And in their hearts, they're asking the question, did I miss something? I was pretty sure that this was him. And maybe that's you here today. Perhaps you've been a follower of Christ for a short amount of time, a couple months. Or perhaps you've walked with him for several years, decades even. And for one reason or another, things haven't quite panned out how you thought they would. The job you've been looking for hasn't come through. Perhaps the college you were hoping to get into, you didn't. The marriage that was a struggle before you came to know the Lord hasn't been fully resolved. And so you turn to God and you just say, do you even care? I thought you cared about me. I put my faith in you and you were supposed to help me. And so maybe some disillusionment has crept into your own heart. But I'm so thankful that we're celebrating communion today. Because the cross gives us the answer to that question, do you care? See, the cross proves to us that God is not only concerned with us, the cares of his people, but he cares enough that he would come to show that the answer to that question is an emphatic yes at ultimate cost to himself. The Bible tells us God loves not only the world, but that he loves you and I with an individual love as our creator. Jesus tells stories, parables, of a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep in order to find the one. And so today, I just want your heart to be encouraged. If you're wondering, does God really care? Does he love me at all? Does he care about what's going on in my life? His answer is yes. He says, I, I prove that to you in the cross. At ultimate cost to myself, I've won for you the ability to know that I'm faithful and that you can trust me. Yes, there are problems. 
And no, God doesn't always release us from them. The job may not come through. The relationship may never be restored. Jesus actually tells us that there will be problems. He says this in John 16. I have told you those things so that in you, you may, you may have peace. In me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He says, though you'll have hardship in this life, you can have hope and joy. Because a day is coming when you'll enter my eternal rest and you'll know pain no longer. And until that day comes, I promise that I will walk alongside you. So if you're in a storm today, if you're wondering if the Lord cares, is he concerned with what's going on in your life? The answer is yes. So trust him. Trust him once more as your king and as your savior. The second person Christ talks to is what we'll call the slow to believe. Jesus criticizes Cleopas here because he had heard Jesus preach and teach for a long time, perhaps even years. And yet he was fully to embrace the call that Jesus had on his life. And I know I can relate to this, and, and perhaps you can too. You know, our Christian life is, is a lifetime of, of constant realignment with the things of God. Of constantly taking our, our hearts and our affections and our actions and laying them before the Lord and saying, Search my heart and know me. If there's anything wrong in me, I want you to show that to me, Lord. But we battle. We battle for holiness. We battle to be the people God calls us to be. Because in our hearts, in some way, we're still slow to embrace his complete call on our lives for utter abandonment to his things and the things of his kingdom. So the question that I I have of myself often, and perhaps you would of today, the thing that I come to the Lord with on a regular basis is I just say, Lord, If you shine a light on every corner of my heart, is it all yours? From the front to the back, side to side, is everything in me utterly yours? And perhaps you know that the answer to that this morning is no. Perhaps the Lord has been calling you to give something up. Maybe it's an activity. Maybe he's calling you to serve here at the church, maybe he's calling you to just go away on a missions trip, and you know he's knocking on the door of your heart, and you've been just holding him back at a distance, afraid to embrace his ultimate call on your life. And the message he has for us in this is, let me be your Lord. You can trust me. As your creator, I know you better than you know yourself, and the things I call you to are for your good. Always for your good. And so let today be the day that you come before him and you just say, Lord, I'm, I'm all in. Everything I have is yours. Everything I have is, is up to your direction. Tell me where to go. Tell me who to love. And I'll do it. I'm yours. And the third person is, is what we'll call the didn't our hearts burn. At the end of the text, the two disciples say to one another, We're not our hearts burning within us while we talked with him on the road, and he opened the scriptures to us. You know, perhaps there was a time when 
When you had this insatiable burning desire and zeal and passion for the things of God. You so looked forward to your quiet time with him. You'd wake up in the morning looking forward to spending some time in prayer. But the troubles of life have just slowly choked that away. Maybe a hectic schedule has just begun to push out your time with the Lord. And so after a period of weeks and months and perhaps years, you found yourself at times feeling rather emotionless to the things of God. Feeling rather bland about Him. Not as excited about the things of God as you once were. You know, these disciples invited Jesus to share a meal with them. They invited Him into what was a common experience and what happened. When they invited Christ to share their life, they saw and experienced him afresh. And so today, Christ is calling us to call him back in. Call him back into the everyday of our lives. Call him back in with the way we allocate our time, with our priorities. Invite him once more to be the Lord of our lives. Our God who we walk with through each and every moment of our days. I believe that you'll experience him again and you'll know the peace and the joy and the deep satisfaction that comes from a living relationship with the one who not only loved you enough to create you, but loved you enough to give himself for you. His death for your life. And as Martin Luther once called it, the great exchange. So as we close, I... I want to leave you with one author's comment on this passage. He writes this. He says, so why is Jesus going after them? Why bother with two cynics who are walking away? Because of love. Jesus is compelled by love. He still leaves the 99 to find the one. He searches the house until he finds the coin. He hosts the party for the return of the prodigal. Jesus believes that despair is not the final word. And Jesus' love propels him to rescue us from our smaller stories and reunite us to his. Because for the one who came to seek and save the lost, hope is not a myth. The story of the scriptures is the story of Jesus. Hope is not concerning our circumstances. Hope is concerning Jesus. And so today... if If you're feeling out of hope, let this story bring you back to the Savior who walks with the disillusioned, who walks alongside those who have given up their faith in Him and calls them back to Him. Your God, your Creator, your King loves you dearly, loves you desperately, and calls us to put our faith and our hope and our trust, not just for salvation, but for our everyday existence in Him. So let's pray to that end together. So Lord Jesus, we we thank You for what this text shows us about Your heart. What it shows us about the heart You have for Your people. What it shows us about how You care about us when we lose our hope in you. We thank you that you're not content to leave us where we are, but you're on a journey to make us more like yourself, crafting us and shaping us and molding us 
into the person that you designed us to be. So God, this morning, would we ever more give ourselves over to you, open our hands before you and say, it's all yours. Make me like yourself. 